Well, I know when you think of servant leadership, that's who you think of, right? Kylo Ren. <laughs> Just out there to make everybody's life better, you know? It's kind of a fun, there's like an epitome of a, of a temper tantrum right there from a full-grown adult, you know, just freaking out. We're in this series called Serve Wars, where we've been talking about student, uh, not student leadership, servant leadership, right? We've been talking about what does that look like? And last week, we launched this whole series uh, with this big idea that servant leadership is about the greatest one at the table, always serving the potential of those around the table. If you're a guest here today, I want to welcome you. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. Inside your program are some talk notes. If you want to follow along, I always say they give people hope that it will end eventually. Two more fill-ins. Wrap this thing up, right? And uh, so we launched this series. and, And so last week was kind of this big idea. What is servant leadership, really in particularly through the the lens of Jesus. We're kind of a Jesus-centered place around here. It's always good to make that the starting point for us. And uh, we were talking about leadership in all of us, that if leadership is influence, that's what we're kind of defining leadership as, that every one of us has a leadership influence. Every one of us has a measure of influence in our world, in our different spheres. And so if last week we kind of began to talk about the big idea of servant leadership, what I want to do today is talk about about the big barrier to servant leadership in all of us. That it doesn't matter uh, where you grew up. It really doesn't matter how you were raised, if your mama raised you right or wrong, right? It doesn't really matter what your zip code is. Like this is a universal barrier for every person to actually begin to understand their influence and to be able to move into looking at others around them and saying, how can I make their greatness a reality? How many of you in the room, let me ask this question, raise your hand up nice and high if one of your favorite things to do is to say, I'm sorry. Is there any, it's just you wake up in the morning and you go, could I please screw things up and apologize to a bunch of people today? That's not inside most of us, is it, right? Inside most of us lives this barrier to saying, I'm sorry. And, and the reason why uh, we, we know this is nobody likes to admit their mistakes. Nobody wants to say, I'm sorry. Nobody wants to be wrong. Right. It's so challenging when... <laughs> I know what you're doing. I saw you looking at me. Well, I looked at a lot of people. Oh, you were looking right at me. No, and I really, I mean, with the lights, it's really hard to even see any, I don't even know if there's anybody out there right now. You looked right at me and you said, some people have a hard time saying sorry. But it's not, it's not, but some people do, like, they all agreed with I, me. What is going on listen, here? We're past the music part, John. This, this is, is my time, not Just your hang time. On a Just hang on. Listen, I know what this is about. It's about New Year's Eve, Right. The egg rolls. Josh, you need to, it's... Okay, listen. You I, never well, really did I, talk... I haven't apologized to you for screwing up your egg rolls on Christmas Eve. It wasn't... It is. On New Year's Eve, you and Andrea came over. Yes. And you were tasked with making the egg rolls. That's true. And you warned and I, me. You said, I've never made, made egg rolls before. I made them way too big. <laughs> they were... They, they completely... It was really a waste of $45 is what it was. I... I between everything. I know I haven't apologized to you about You that. haven't, but it's not that it. big of a deal. It's just egg rolls. I think I'm finally ready to apologize Right here now. and now? I mean, this could have been an email. This is not... Yeah. I, <laughs> I figured this was more appropriate to interrupt your message. Listen, 
And I, and I thought the best way to apologize, I, ha I happen to know that your all-time favorite band is Chicago. I don't know Chicago about that. Fans in the room. I mean, I've heard of Chicago, the band, but I don't know if it's my no, favorite. You, you but... love Chicago. Okay. Just be honest with everybody. Okay. So I thought I would just apologize to you with a song. It could be a little awkward because this song is clearly about lovers. And that's, that's Aren't exactly most Chicago situation. songs like that, though? So this, this is a, a co-worker to co-worker song, okay? So now's my chance to finally apologize. I hope you will accept this apology. <laughs> okay, ready? Oh, I'm ready. Everybody needs a little time away. I heard her say <laughs> from each other. Is that even the right Once pronoun again, for me? Even lovers need a holiday. Awkward. Don't encourage this. Far away from each other. Hold me now. I'm not gonna hold you. Not really. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. <laughs> I just want you to stay. I'm not going anywhere. It's just egg rolls. After all that we've been through. It hasn't been that much, really. I, I mean, it's just been a couple of months. Just bring egg rolls next time. That's all you gotta After do. All that's been said and done, you're just a part of me. I can't let go. I think you should let it go, though. I really do. <laughs> Ryan, I'm sorry about the egg rolls. I appreciate that. And I don't know if it was creepier you singing that to me or singing it with your mom. <laughs> I don't know which one it is, but... Give Josh and his mom a great big hand. Yeah. Well, clearly Josh doesn't have a problem apologizing. You know, it's 20 days late, but that's okay. It's no, no problem. <laughs> right? But I mean, there is a reason why that Chicago song, like everybody knows it. You can all sing along because it resonates. It, it just speaks truth. That's what songs do oftentimes. Poems do. When they resonate with us, they speak truth. Now, why is it that nobody likes to admit their mistakes? Why is it that it's so hard to say, I'm sorry, right? Well, it's because at the end of the day, there's something in us, there's something in our culture, there's something in the way we're wired, the way we're raised, the influences that make rightness and wrongness, right? The things that we do that are right, the things that we do that are wrong, that we turn those things into issues of identity, and when we start messing with our identity, our self-worth, our value, that's where things get very tricky. And we saw that in our, in our Star Wars clip this morning, right? Supreme Leader Snoke, right? He makes this statement to Kylo Ren. He says, you're just a child in a mask. If you're not familiar with the movie, he's just kind of made this huge mistake. He's failed. Uh, and, and all of a sudden it comes into, it's not that you did something wrong. And of course, we wouldn't expect like a, dark lord of whatever to exercise good leadership. So that's why it makes it such a brilliant example, right? It goes right to the heart of identity. And what happens is this character, Kylo Ren, freaks out, right? Because he's taking it in. And the whole like last three movies, the Star Wars, are really about his own identity crisis, right? Like, who am I? What am I? And at the end of the day, when we have this need to be right, like this inability to recognize that we're wrong, that we've done something wrong, 
right? When we're living in that space where it is impossible, we're blinded to the reality that just maybe we had something to do with the argument, that just maybe we didn't parent exactly in a redemptive way, that maybe we forgot to do something at work, right? But we make excuses and it's never our fault. We can't imagine it, right? When that happens, that's when we're living into what we'll call the false self, Right? So when we always need to be right, the false self is abundant and living in our lives. So this thing we'll call the false self, which all of us have, it really does thrive and it comes into being by categories and comparison. It emerges in our lives at a very young age. We're, we're parented into our false self. We're, we're hobbied into it, our interests. And the false self are all the things, like very simply, we'll just simplify this concept. The false self are all those things that are not eternal about us. Right? The things that at the end of the day, when, when all is said and done, and they've had the, the, the potato salad and the you know, country fried biscuits at your funeral coalition, right? Everybody's sitting around and they said all the nice things. It's all that stuff that just stayed here, right? It's our titles and our education and our finances and our money and all that stuff, but it's not necessarily bad, right? It's stuff that forms our identity. It grows with us, right? We, we, we recognize who we are oftentimes in contradistinction to who others are, right? So I'm not Josh, I define myself in that way. I'm Ryan, right? And there are things that I can do better than Josh. I can certainly make egg rolls better than Josh. I can promise you that. But I can't play the guitar as good as Josh. I can't sing as well as Josh, I should say. Right? There, and so what I do is I form an identity that's based on categories in comparison. Josh is a musician. I'm a wannabe musician. Those are two different categories, right? Now, here's the thing. I don't want us to think that the false self is all bad. It's not. It, it's necessary. It helps us navigate life. Those titles, those understandings of ourselves, it helps us know like how to function. And when I apply for a job, it tells me I should not apply to be an astronaut. Right? But if I don't have any false self and understanding that I would be no good to anybody in space, there's no reason why I should apply for that. Right? I shouldn't be a guide in the wilderness. Not, that's not my, that, no, I shouldn't do those things. So it's not that it's all bad. Now, Richard Rohr, a favorite author of mine, he's a Franciscan priest who I, I really love a lot of the things that he says about spirituality, his understanding of grace and the world that we live in and Jesus and scripture. He writes a lot about the false self. And, and he uses this phrase in a little blog post. He said, the false self is more bogus than bad. Right? It's not that it's bad, it's just bogus. At the end of the day, it can't take us far enough. Even Jesus, right? for many of us in the room who we've come to a place of faith and believe that Jesus is divine, we would call Jesus the son of God, whatever that means in our language, but we believe that God was kind of incarnated in Jesus. Jesus had a false self. Right? Jesus had all these labels about him that didn't. Jesus was a carpenter, right? He grew up in a certain town. He was, had a certain uh, amount of you know, wealth and money, right? He had these labels and even the false self of his own humanity, right? He had to shed that false self through the cross and the grave and what emerges in the resurrection, right? Is the true self of Jesus, the risen Christ, Right? And isn't that at the end of the day, what spiritual formation, why you're here, right? You might not know it. You might not have the language for it. But the reason why you've been brought here by, I believe, the spirit of God, it wasn't your Volkswagen or, you know, your Subaru. I'm sorry, we're in Colorado. <laughs> What's up with all the Subarus, people? <laughs> well, there are other vehicles out there that can handle snow. 
okay, they've got you fooled. Um, but, right? So those things, that, the thing that brings us here is this idea of being formed spiritually, spiritual formation to look a little bit more like Jesus in our actions, to look a little bit more like our creator, and to see the true self emerge, to see the false self subside, and this true self who we actually really are. That's kind of the role of spiritual formation. And the reason why that's important for our topic today is because only the true self not the false self. Only the true self can actually embrace servant leadership. The false self cannot. The thing about us, that part of us that needs categories, that needs comparison, right? It cannot embrace servant leadership because servant leadership doesn't care about categories. It doesn't care about comparison, right? It doesn't recognize it, those things. Because the false self needs recognition, it's actually incapable of embracing a way of leading, a way of loving that potentially will never give itself any recognition, so it's not that the false self, by the way, can't do anything humble, right? It's not like you can't do anything good in the false self. Of course you can. We see this all over the world. But here's the thing. The false self will always get offended when it doesn't get recognized. And you've, you've done this before. Don't lie to me. Just sit there and lie to me. I can see it all over your faces. You're like, this is totally not applicable to me. Lies. Because you've emptied the dishwasher for your spouse and they didn't say thank you. And you're like, I can't believe they didn't even notice I did you vacuumed the house, did all this stuff. Your spouse came home, didn't even recognize you. I can't believe that. That's the false self, right? Oh, it's, it's good with our kids too. If you've got kids, how many, if you have teenagers right now, raise your hand up right now, we're gonna form a support group. You got teenagers right now, all right? I'm with you. Teenagers, they bring out the false self in you. You do anything for a teenager, they'll never recognize it. And, 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 it, and it's not that it's just pure enough that you did it for them. You gave them money. Anybody ever give their teenager money? Stop, just stop right now. It's a black hole, don't do it anymore. You give them money, and then seven seconds later, they're lipping off to you. You're like, what? What is wrong with you? I just, don't you know what I, I've said this to my own kids all the time. You have nothing without me, right? And that's the false self, by the way. That is the false self, right? And I need you to know that you have nothing. You will not make it in this life without me, right? That's the truth of it. Because we're incapable, and when we're in our false selves, we are incapable of embracing the truest form of servant leadership. And so the only way that we can do this is figure out a way to be right when we're wrong. That's the only way. The only way that you and I will be able to allow the true self to emerge out of us is if somehow we can figure out a way to be right even when we're wrong and even when we're wronged. So Jesus and Paul both talk about this concept in unique ways. Jesus gives us a great example of it, all right? And he, and he talks about this in one of the gospels. We're gonna look at the gospel of Luke today and then one letter uh, by Paul. If you're new to Bible study, I'm so glad you're here. All the verses from the Bible that we're gonna look at are gonna be on the screen. If you brought a Bible, you can open it up, you can turn it on, whatever you wanna do. And uh, we're gonna walk through some of these passages uh, because really the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus that I try to follow. And, and the scripture is a great space for me to understand that. And ultimately, my goal here is to follow the Jesus of the Bible, to look more like Jesus. Because I have found that most people love Jesus. I've never met anybody who, who, like, when you really hear the heartbeat of Jesus, they're not like, 
That's amazing, right? That really is good news for all people, right? And so what I want to do is look at some verses uh, that Jesus gives and then Paul, who really was kind of one of the most instrumental people of getting the Jesus message outside of Judaism. And he writes a letter to a group of people in a town where he started a church. The town was called Colossae and he wrote this letter to the Colossians. And so we'll look at some verses. It was an actual letter. Like he hand wrote this letter 2,000 years ago and we still have it. That's amazing, by the way. I don't have emails from last week, right? We get this letter, all right? So we're going to look. So Jesus, it says this in Luke. Luke says that when Jesus noticed, he was at this dinner party. He noticed all the people, they came to the dinner. They were trying to sit at the seats of honor. They wanted to be at the head of the table, right? All the false selves had gathered in the room, right? And he says this, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor, What if someone who is more distinguished than you has been invited? Those are the false self-categories that exist. In other words, don't, there's always a bigger fish in the sea, right? There's always somebody who's more distinguished than you, no matter how you think. So don't do that. The host is going to come and say to you, hey, you need to give up your seat. And then you'll be embarrassed because you're going to have to go to whatever seat's left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he'll come and say, hey, friend, we have a better seat for you. Come, right? He's going to come and sit. And then you'll be honored in front of all of those guests. And Jesus says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, the false self needs the public symbols of status. Jesus gives us this beautiful example. But what Jesus doesn't say is it's all bad, right? It's awesome. Jesus says, let somebody else exalt you. And if you end up sitting in a seat, right, that, that you know you deserve a better seat, You should have a formed identity that is okay if you never get put up to the better seat. Like Jesus recognizes the categories exist, that you do have certain seats that you deserve to sit in, but don't place yourself in that seat because there's a good chance that somebody else is gonna displace you from that seat, right? But that false self, Jesus says, needs it. So there's this other space where Jesus, I think, gives us a great picture of what the false self and the true self really are. And he talks about it in terms of containers. And one way to think about the false self is to think of it as the container that holds our identity. It's the container that holds who we are. And Jesus talked about new and old wineskins, right? So wine in Jesus's day was stored in a skin and that skin would shrink over time and it would expand over time. And it had to do with the wine that was in it. Right? And so it would expand when you would put new wine in and over time it would shrink. And if you put other wine in an old wineskin, the thing would burst. And so you always had to use new wine with new wineskin. And so Jesus says this, he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins for the new wine would burst the wineskin, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new one. The old is just fine, they say. I think what Jesus is getting at is our lives are like wineskins. And when God wants to do something new in us, right, that new thing, we are, that false self that we have has to be shifted. It has to be changed. To receive the new of God, we have to recognize what in us had its space and had its place, but isn't sufficient for what God wants to do. And I love that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say that the old wineskin is bad. He just says it's not sufficient, It's not sufficient. So when God wants to do new things in your life, for God to try and take those new things and pour them into your life as it is, it's no good. Because what Jesus says is, 
spill, it'll spill the wine. So the good things that God wants to do in your life are gonna spill out. They're not gonna take hold. And it'll ruin the skins. That container that you have, that's my beard. How's that? You might have to turn it down because I just moved it. Right, the, 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 the old wine skin will burst. In other words, the way you thought of yourself that I didn't, it'll be shattered. And now you're just a mess. And I don't think God wants any of that, right? And so there's this new wine that God wants to do in your life. I don't care where you are in your spiritual journey. I don't care what you call God. I don't care who you are, what you label yourself as, none of that. When God wants to do something new, there's always a newness that comes with it. You cannot continue down the same road, right? And so Paul talks about what this new wineskin actually is. He gives us a different language in his letter to the Colossians. And so I wanna look at a few verses. Basically, if you're kind of a Bible person and you wanna look at these, it's Colossians chapter two, verse 20. And we're gonna kind of look through chapter three, verse four, and then finish off with 10 and 11, right? Because we only have so much time. I can't read the whole thing to you, okay? So Colossians chapter two, verses 20 through 23, Paul is talking to this group of people who are following Jesus, they're trying to figure out what does it mean to live this life in Christ. And this is the language that Paul uses. He says, you have died with Christ. Now, they didn't actually literally die. This is a metaphor. They're saying just as Jesus died to his false self, he was crucified in the flesh, you have died with him, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. Now, we live in a modern world, and we don't oftentimes think of spiritual powers unless it's on a television show called Evil, right? So I would suggest that we kind of tone down that like evil demon around every corner, but we recognize that there are spiritual powers in this world that tend to want to prop up that false self. They want to hang on to our categories, hang on to our comparisons, right? But we've died with Christ, and in that death, we died to those categories, just like Jesus died to those categories. So why do you keep on following the rules? Paul says these are Jewish uh, people or even Gentiles who are trying to follow Jewish law. He says, why do you keep following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. Could you imagine Paul talking about the Bible this way? Like, if you pause that for a second for all my Bible folks, right? I mean, I love, I love that we look, I mean, it's the, it really is the center point of our teachings, but, but Paul is like, why do you keep following the Bible? Ooh, that's a tough one to swallow for those of us that like, the Bible is my rule for faith and conduct, like, that's what I grew up with. Like, this is the thing. Like, without it, how would I possibly know how to live my life? But when you look at the way Paul sees his own scriptures, Paul didn't have his letters to refer back to. I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> like, he didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He didn't have any of that stuff. He had the spirit of the living God, which that spirit of God is flowing and is still flowing and moving among us. And he says, why do you keep following your Bible like that's gonna produce something powerful in you. Like in and of itself. He says that the reality is these rules seem wise to you because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. All things that people can see and recognize. Look at how many times I go to church. Look at how much money I put in that offering envelope. Some of you don't close the offering envelope. Just let it pass by. Maybe somebody will see. <laughs> Just kidding. You don't do that. It's just not socially acceptable. You would if you could, right? 
we'd have a big old roll-up board. Who gave the most today, right? Get your name on that board. But people can see it. They love it. He says, why do you do that? And then Paul lays it down. Like he's like, following those rules, which is your Bible, right? That's the reality. He says, they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. I don't think we read this sometimes and understand how incredibly controversial this was, what Paul was saying. He's like, uh, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Psalms, Ecclesiastes. Like we could just keep going on. Like you just follow all those rules. Here's the deal. Following all those rules looks really great and it makes you feel good about yourselves, but it doesn't help you conquer the evil desires. Now, can we call evil desires more than like what we think of moralistically? My evil desire to like look at whatever website, my evil desire to tell a lie about my coworker so I can get the promotion, right? Can we call evil desires those things that just hold us back from the true self that God wants to emerge out of us that produces Christ in the world, that reveals Christ in the world? So for the Jewish mind that that Paul's writing to, it's the false self that was grounded in law keeping. That was the the rule. That was it. If I keep the law, the false self is propped up. Look at me. And we see it in the description of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. We see that in, in the teachings of Jesus, in the writings of the gospels. It's propped up. But Paul goes on and he says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, new life, it's key for the true self. Since the true self has emerged in Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, you died to that old self, and your real life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now listen, I'm just going to lay this out for you. I don't personally hold a literal belief that Jesus sits on a throne next to a God that has arms and legs, right? I think that those are metaphors to help us understand a big reality, right? I think that they make perfect sense in a culture that is grounded in Roman and Greek mythology where gods sit on thrones and lightning bolts come and you have Zeus in the pantheon of gods. That's an understanding of the place of Jesus and Christ in our lives, That's not to say that I don't believe that there's this heaven, that I don't believe that there's eternity, but I don't think that what we should pull from this text in our self, in in where we are in the world now, is this idea that God and, and Jesus are someplace really far away, usually up, right? But that what we're pulling out of this is there's a seat of honor, there's a place in our lives that Christ is supposed to hold, and we're supposed to fix our heart and our minds in that space, in that zone, And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, Paul says, you will share in all his glory. When Christ is revealed, who is your life? See, your real life is hidden in Christ. This bigger reality, this living Christ that has been present, teeming through creation, coursing through this world, revealed in Jesus in the resurrection. That's where your real nature, it sits. And so when Paul says, when we fix our eyes on, right? We live into that space. That's where transformation really starts to happen. Like transformation in our lives, right, begins to happen when we commit ourselves to living in what I will call the meta-reality of the living Christ. 
beyond what we see, taste, and touch, beyond the categories that this world creates, when we live into that space and we start to say, I have to see people not in the categories and in the comparisons of the world, but in the way in which the creator and the Christ is indwelling this space. And Paul brings it to a huge crescendo in in verses 10 and 11, where he says this, put on your new nature, the true self, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him, forgive the pronoun, become like your creator, the one who is holding and sustaining all things, the one who is revealed in Christ. And in this new life, I love this. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. And this is the mind-blowing statement that we pass over and we read it through the lens of our triumphantalistic understanding of our we're the best, we're the Christians, we prayed the prayer, we missed it completely, I've missed it for many years. This is what Paul says, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. So where is Christ hidden? Where is your life hidden? In you, in Christ. Where is that person at work who you can't stand? Where is their true life hidden? In Christ, and where is Christ? In them, waiting to be discovered. That, like the image of God, born in all of us, the Christ in all of us, as revealed through Jesus' death and resurrection. And we are invited to participate in the death and resurrection. That's why baptism is still so powerful. Because baptism is is, is this understanding that this is what God has done in my life. It's not what I've done, but this is what God has done in my life. And I have been transformed and I have made that commitment. And now I know that my life is not hidden in the categories and comparisons of this world. It's hidden in Christ that is in all of us. So when the risen Christ is all that matters, the true self has emerged. And now we start to live in this meta-reality this life beyond categories and comparisons. Because listen, we don't categorize and compare, right? We don't use the categories of barbarian, civilized, Jew, Gentile. We don't use those categories anymore, right? That's not what divides us. But we have our categories. We have the lens in which we see people and how we'll treat them. Black, white, Latino, poor, wealthy, middle class, Republican, Democrat, gay, straight, If Paul were writing this today, I believe wholeheartedly, he would say, those categories, that's, that's the old self. Christ is in all. Christ is in all. It's hidden, our lives are hidden. And so those categories mean nothing. And here's the truth. When our life is hidden in Christ and we start to see the world with new eyes, when we start to realize that the categories and the comparisons only hold us back in an old self that is bogus, that can't actually move us into what God wants for this world, all of a sudden we find our lives hidden in Christ and we don't need to be right because we know our lives are true. We know our lives are true because the true self is real, it is more real than anything else that we can see and taste and touch. It is genuine, it is authentic, and it's who we are. So for Paul, it was the old life and the new life. Paul in other places uses words like the flesh and the spirit. For Jesus, it's old wine and new wineskins. So for you and me in our everyday normal lives, when we walk out of here, how do we live into the true self? Couple of really simple things very quickly. Number one, we have to commit to living this new life that's hidden in Christ. 
And this gets called different things in different traditions. It gets called different things amongst Christians at different times. It gets called salvation. It gets called the sinner's prayer. It gets called crossing the line of faith. It gets called sanctification. It gets called, it gets called all kinds of things, but it is a commitment when the spirit of God opens our eyes to the reality of God at work in this world that we surrender and we say, I am saved from my sin because my sin actually is not, I'm not saved from God. I don't need to be saved from God. God is pure love and pure light. It's terrible language. I don't need to be saved from that. Who needs to be saved from love? But we hold these categories, right? I mean, just, we can't say that God is pure love and the need to be saved from God. That's, that there's a breakdown there. So there's a misunderstanding. But God rescues us from the power of sin, our false self, that sees the world in these ways that then move us to start wounding one another. And we live in a, in a space of woundedness. And so when we start to see every human being as Christ in them, how do you point a gun at someone and destroy them? How do you get any missiles at them? How do you get into border disputes when you start to recognize everything is Christ? This is the most amazing, this is why it is good news to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Christ the Lord. And so this rescuing happens when our eyes are open and now we become these peacemakers. We become these people that walk out. So I wanna encourage you today. You have to commit to that life. Without that commitment, you'll never live into it. Christ can never become all that matters. The truth is a lot of us in this room, we go to church, but Christ is not all that matters. And I would be foolish to stand up here and say, well, in my life, Christ is all that matters. Are you kidding me? Christ isn't all that matters. I wish that were the case. I would say a solid 40% of the time, 100% of the time, Christ is all that matters in my life. <laughs> but I'm a human, just like everybody else, these moments that the false self emerges out. But my commitment, the commitment, the core of my life is Christ that matters. We sang this song last week, Christ before me, Christ behind me. But what if Christ before me was Jim Sturgis? And what if Christ behind me was Josh back there, probably not paying any attention because he's done with his part now. But, but that's, how, that's how Christ is revealed in the world. That is mind-blowing. That Christ is revealed as I look at you and it doesn't matter your skin color, doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter your sexual identity, doesn't matter any of those things. It's Christ in you, forming in you, redeeming you, working in you, conquering sin in you. And by the way, sin is just, conquering the wounded nature and the wounds that you have produced. That's what it is. So we make that commitment. And I wanna encourage you, if you have never made that commitment, it will change your life. It will change your life. I've seen it over and over again. When we commit, not when we say a little prayer that gets out of, out of hell free, that doesn't transform anybody's life. I promise you, it doesn't. It might change some behavior, but that's a type of, that's a type of, work that's a type of conversion that just never lasts. But when we commit ourselves to saying all that matters is Christ in you and Christ in me and living that out and seeing it flourish, that will transform the world. That will change lives. Secondly, once we make that commitment, we have to identify the rules of the world that seem wise to me. It's not following the Jewish law. Let's be honest, that's not what it is. I'm, I'm a 42-year-old white Middle-class American. 
There comes all kinds of rules that I say, if I follow these rules, then I get the status. If I have the right car in the garage, and, and, and that's what it looks like for you. No matter who you are, if you're a 27-year-old gay man in the room who's Hispanic, there are a set of rules that seem wise to follow. If you are a 17-year-old teenage girl, there are a set of rules that seem wise to follow, and we have to recognize those rules. And we have to say, if I'm following the rules of this world in that area in, in, in my life, is it actually producing any power to conquer the evil desires so that I can flourish in loving God and loving others? And I think one of the most powerful things that we can do as we start to live into this reality is to learn that it's okay to say my false moments out loud. That when the false self emerges, I have to pause and go, oh, that's the false self. That's not me. It's not me. Paul says, why do I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do? Oh, it's sin at work in me. But Christ in me is like, it, 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 there's this personification of, it's okay, we have to say that. When I get frustrated because my spouse doesn't recognize that I made the bed for crying out loud. That's the false self. I did the dishes, false self. How did you not notice that I cleaned out the garage? False self. This is everyday real life stuff, right? This isn't, how come you didn't notice that I started a nonprofit that saves girls from human trafficking? I've saved 10,000 people, right? Like who in the room is actually gonna do that? Like no one. But that's what we put this up to. This is like your kids when I wanna, false self. Whether they recognize it or not, Christ in them. How do I help them? How do I serve them? And so what's powerful about this is when the emergence of the true self actually happens, internal healing, recreation of who we are. And what is that? That's inner peacemaking. We're made whole inside. We can look deep within ourselves. And that internal healing, call it salvation, call it commitment, call it whatever, call it the sinner's prayer. I don't really care what you call it. I don't think God does either. When we make that commitment, internally, and we internally start to find wholeness, now we can move out externally. And we can actually be peacemakers in this world because we don't care who gets the credit. I actually don't think Jesus cares who gets the credit either. Because in my best self, I don't care that my spouse notices that I did the dishes. I don't care that my spouse notices that I did this or if my kids get it. That's my best self. My best version of me is when I can purely do things because of the joy of serving. So why wouldn't Jesus hold that to the like nth degree, right? I just don't know that God cares who gets the credit when love abounds, when grace is found, when the Christ in you is recognized, that human dignity. So as we wrap up today, here's the question. If you're around here, you get sick of this question. You probably don't even wanna come on Sundays because I'm gonna ask you this. What is God inviting you into today? Hopefully it's more than the AFC and NFC championship games. And it's a great start. But what is it that God is inviting you into? And this is a difficult topic because it's about identity. And I have a sense that many of us in the room, if we could really be honest and vulnerable, we would say, I really don't know who I am. And when you start talking about having to be right and not being able to just be wrong, I always have to correct that. I don't wanna say it out loud, but I really don't know that I know who I am. You know, one of my, with my kids, one of my favorite things I like to say to them is, 
It's okay to let people be wrong. You know that, right? Yeah, but dad, they'll be in an argument. So just let, let him be wrong. But, but it's not, just let him be wrong. It's okay. Just resign. It, it's okay. It's okay if they're wrong. They might not be. Just think of that. But if there's something inside of you, you say, oh, I can't, how, could, how could I ever let somebody off the hook be wrong? It's, it, it boils down to this fundamental reality of do I know who I am? So that if I'm right or if I'm wrong, I'm right. I'm genuine, I'm true, I'm at work. God is at work in me, Christ is at work in me just like Christ is at work in you. And so as they sing this song over us, you might wanna sing, you'll probably know it. You can finish filling out your communication card, get your offering envelope ready. We'll receive that here in just a moment. Take any next steps that you feel like God is calling you to today. But would you consider this question, where and when is your false self most likely to make a guest appearance? You know that uninvited guest that shows up, they know where you live, they're your neighbor, and you're just like, oh no, they know I'm here. The garage door was open. (laughs) There's probably a scene in your life that you could replay and say, that's where it happens. That's where the false self comes out. In my life, If I sit around a group of people and I'm supposed to be the one in charge and I feel a little pressed on a decision and I feel like like maybe somebody's questioning whether I exact use the right judgment, the false self will come out and I have to actually breathe and I have to say, it's okay. That's the false self who needs to be right. That's the false self that needs to put up the persona that everybody thinks that the person in charge can't have a lapse of judgment, can't make a bad leadership decision, can't not fully think through something. And I just have to pause and reflect and allow that to speak into me. But my heart will race. If anybody on our team ever sees my ears get red, they could probably go false self. That's a false self, Ryan. And then I can humble myself and I can start serving the table again. But it's in that moment where I want the table to start serving me because I have the title. I think in my family, there are certain spaces where the false self comes out. When I feel like I'm doing everything I can and nobody's recognizing it because they can't see it. I have to just, that's not it. I have to let it go. And I'll do that maybe one out of a hundred times. But hopefully next week I can do it twice. And maybe next year, four times. And that's growth. That's becoming more like Christ. So I just invite you to enjoy the next few moments with God and with one another. Open your heart up for what the universe would say to you today. Because God is always speaking. The question is, are we listening?